It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by Irene Carmone. She is a senior correspondent for New York Magazine. You probably know her as the author of Notorious RBG, and she has written an incredible piece in New York Mag about the scandal at Yale Law School and Amy Chua. It's the Tiger Mom and the Hornet's Nest. Irene, it has been a very long time since we have spoken. How are you holding up? How's the baby? Tell me everything. Good morning. Wow. Post-pandemic. What a concept. Um, I, uh, my baby is right? doing well. She's about to turn one next week, which is wild. My little pandemic baby oh. is, just took her first steps this week. Oh. Um, so yeah, all, all is well. We do have a pet. We have That's a amazing. dog named Bonita. I love it. Oh, yeah. Big Bonita. week in our household. I Bonita mean, for bone eater. No, that's huge. Oh, but it's so good. Oh, I love I... plays on words. <laughs> and Jess is an English major, so she really, she's going to hold back. Yeah, but no, I think I'm all she about really, that really likes that. <laughs> My husband out. loves both puns and dogs. <laughs> dogs are so That's great. great. I love puns and life. dogs make people happy. <laughs> okay. My cat, I want to ask you My about cat this. is also excellent. Absolutely. I just have to interject. No, yeah. MJ, <laughs> Move we on. can't leave him out. Absolutely. I know. Larger than I the know. dog. Love him. Okay. This massive, insane story that you yes. have uh, about which Amy there is Chua, a dog next to uh, who everybody knows. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that if you look <laughs> at the photo, you can see that the dog conversation is quite relevant. Exactly. Perfect. Oh, look at that. Yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. Okay. So, perfect segue then to this story. Uh, so, Amy Chua, who you know as as the the, the, the tiger mom from that uh, from that you know, parenting book that, that she wrote. She's, she's now a professor. Um, she's getting criticized for hosting drunken dinner parties with students and possibly federal judges during the pandemic. And you read that and you're like, oh my God, that's awful. <laughs> like she should definitely be doing that. But then it seems like maybe she wasn't doing that at all. And this was sort of manufactured. Can you explain what the hell is going on here? Yeah, so I think there's been a lot of misinformation out there about this. I, I first want to say that I began reporting this story, uh, not at all about Amy Chua, but about her husband, Jed Rubenfeld, who, like her, is a professor at Yale Law School. And last summer, while I was on maternity leave, I broke the story that he was being suspended after being investigated for sexual harassment. And there was more for the, to the story. So I decided to come back to it after, you know, the election and the pandemic was were slightly waning. The world was slightly more normal, only slightly. And this story, to me, is really about how a quote-unquote power couple used their power in the number one law school in the country, um, including access to federal judges like Justice Kavanaugh, um, who is a very important part of the story in ways we could talk about. Um, mm -hmm. And both yep. of them right now, both Jed and Amy, are, are kind of in exile right now at Yale Law School. And I think that that's some important context. I think there's a temptation to make this about like overzealous students or were there dinner parties. The important context here is that both of them were disciplined for abusing their power over students. 
And Amy Chua made an agreement saying that she would no longer drink with students and she would no longer have students at her house. So it's a little bit of a misdirection. I think that, you know, the Times, honestly, I think has added some misinformation to this. Um, did she have students at her house? Yes. Did that violate the agreement? As far as my reporting can tell, yes. Why is this important, though? This is about two people who control access to the highest echelons of the legal profession, including to the Supreme Court. And how are they using that power? In the case of her, she was accused of retaliating against students, which she was cleared of. But she did, you know, Slate reported that she threatened to block people from clerkships who crossed her husband. Um, an environment in which really people felt afraid to report the allegations against Jed Rubenfeld. It took 20 years for people to come forward to say that he sexually harassed them as his professor. And why did it take so long? Because the two of them together controlled so much of the kind of brass ring of the legal profession. Um, so to me, that's what the story is about. I mean, it's very fun to be like, oh, who screen grabbed whose text? You know, kids right. these days are trying to cancel Amy Chua. I think that's a red herring. I think that this story is really about who has power, how do they use it. And to me, the powerful people in this story are the two tenured professors who have a long track record of mentoring people who are now famous and powerful and controlling the lives of a lot of people. And that's why I thought it was interesting enough to do a feature story for New York Magazine. Well, there was this conversation going on um, when the, and, and I understand what you're saying in terms of the Times piece, because, you know, there's been a lot of conversation online about like, well, I mean, what's wrong with drinking with your professors? Mostly men saying mm -hmm. this. Um, uh -huh. And I, can we just like answer that question? Yeah. Because there's a power yeah. dynamic there, right? Yeah. I mean, like, this is well, an easy answer, but no I think one, maybe no we has, need to give it. Yeah, no one has, and so to be clear, we're talking about, I think, weirdly, some people have started talking about this in a much broader context. We are talking about graduate students who are at least in their, like, mid-20s, but... Right. I mean, no, I don't think that anybody is saying adults can never have a glass of wine at dinner together. Um, the allegations that are out there that were brought in a formal process against both Amy Chua and Jed Rubenfeld involved really excessive drinking. You know, like some of the documents that I uncovered for this story from the proceedings against Jed Rubenfeld described, you know, there's testimony of him having four or five whiskeys in front of his students at a time. Um, it's clear that some of the comments, you know, that, that Amy made about Brett Kavanaugh and how he liked attractive clerks, which we can get into, um, and she, you know, offered to coach people that excessive drinking could have been involved in that kind of lack of filter, although she is certainly an unfiltered person, even when alcohol isn't involved. Um, so, so I think part of it is not, again, it's not just a glass or two of wine. The allegations are of excessive drinking, and there's a lot of people who testified to that. But to your point, I think that there's a broader dynamic here where a student may just want to figure out a way that they can build a relationship with this person who, if all goes well, can open the door for them to everything that they dream of in their career. Mm -hmm. They might not be looking for a friend. Now, I'm not sure why it's so important to Amy to have people at her house and drink or not drink. She said she didn't drink, they drank. But there, there is not an equal playing field. You're absolutely right that there is a power dynamic. And there may be some individuals who are not at all interested in drinking, whether for religious reasons, personal reasons, or boundaries. 
And it is clear that in a lot of these instances, especially in the documents that I read from the secret sexual harassment proceedings, that alcohol can also be a nexus for abusing mm-hmm. your power over vulnerable students and make people feel like they can't complain because, right. you know, there's this fog of alcohol. So I do think that excessive drinking, again, nobody is saying that like a 25-year-old can't have a glass of dinner at a celebratory event after a speaking event of a judge or something. Um, but I think we have to be clear that what we're talking about here is students who are desperate to get somebody to take them under their wing. And the right. point of that appears to be like, you know, there's a quote from one of the complainants in the sexual harassment uh, proceedings that says, OK, I guess to succeed at Yale Law School, you have to get really drunk with your professors and answer invasive questions about your sex life. I just don't think that that creates an equal educational environment for women, which is the whole point of Title IX. For real. I mean, it seems it, I was it, I'm just glad sort I'm of glad we got the answer to that out because it's been bothering me. Also, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we, we here on this show, Signal Boost, we have very specific definitions of like, what's a friend? First of all, mm-hmm. I don't. So so people I get wasted with, like, what is that? What is that? That's culturally, I don't understand it. I understand that, like, that may not just be my ministry. That's not my experience. But mm-hmm. getting wasted with somebody does not build close you know, intimate connection with them. And I don't understand yeah. why that's the, the like pathway to, I don't know. you know, an I intimate friendship like with a, a professor. A vampire element of this where, why is it so important to these older folks who are after all 58 and 62 to drink so much with their students when, mm. you know, in the case of her, she was specifically told not to socialize with them outside of class. You know, and in her defense, she said, you know, that they wanted to come and talk to her, um, you know, about experiences of racism on campus. And it is true that she has, you know, a real track record of mentoring students. But I just think that, you know, I quote a student in the piece that says, I just don't think you need to be drinking buddies with your professor Mm. to get ahead. And that they believe that Amy Chua and others do this in order to kind of just make people feel like, okay, this is the power that we have over you. And again, some people may, you know, really enjoy this, but I do think, like, I think it's always really important to understand, like, what is the principle of Title IX? And that's that everybody has access to a safe and equitable education environment that doesn't Mm -hmm. unfairly advantage one group of people over another. So even if it's just the bros are all drinking out with the male professor or, when a professor gets drunk, he gets handsy, mm-hmm. which is some of the allegations here that, you know, there's an allegation that, that, that was found to be credible by the Title IX committee that her husband tried to kiss his student when she fell down. Um, that does not, in the view, you know, if you understand Title IX to be that everybody has equal access to this, it's not about being friends, right? It's about making sure that you have a learning environment where everybody can safely access an education. And that even if their professor wants to kiss them or so- drink with them. Right. Right. It, 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 the, the stuff that's the, the, the vignettes that are in your piece, the, the pieces uh, from from those parties, from those those evenings where you detail the sort of boundary crossing behavior that was knowing that that was the foundation for the Brett Kavanaugh support mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. earned her and her husband so much criticism. That mm-hmm. completely changes. I mean, I, it's, it's not like I was pro that Brett Kavanaugh support before, but <laughs> now that I understand that, that that was made after they were already receiving criticism for heavy drinking and power dynamics 
in their own home. Mm-hmm. That just makes you look at it completely differently. Like, I, I think that's I, so I, true would Brett Kavanaugh even together. have wanted their support at that moment? <laughs> well, well, I mean, you know, I think what you're hinting at here is that we all, uh, you know, indelible in our brain is that hearing, which also included Brett Kavanaugh yelling, I like beer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like turning on Amy Klobuchar, asking her if she liked to drink and, also, I think said that part of the reason that he couldn't have, I don't know, sexually assaulted somebody in high school or misbehaved in, in college is that he worked his tail off and went to Yale Law School. So he is, of course, a graduate of Yale Law School. And, and some of the people I wrote about had him as a student. Um, so, uh, you know, think about the culture also. This is so important. The culture of patronage within the elite legal profession Somebody like Brett Kavanaugh, you know, going from Yale Law School to clerking for Judge Kaczynski, who is himself accused of sexual harassment and resigned before he could be investigated, then clerking for Justice Kennedy, you know, and then replacing Justice Kennedy and having the steady stream of clerks sent to him by people like Jed Rubenfeld and Amy Chua, who are, you know, according to the reporting that I did and according to previous reporting, the story was broken by The Guardian and The Huffington Post. You know, they would talk, both of them talked about how, Brett Kavanaugh liked clerks. This is a very close, very prestigious relationship. Liked clerks who had a, quote, certain look. And Amy offered to, you know, counsel her on what to wear to the interview and send pictures and so on with the implication that, you know, you had to shape yourself. What? I'm sorry? Sending photos of outfits? Like, that that just seemed so far afield. Is that, I mean, would that not be a thing you would do, like, I don't know, figure out what to wear to an interview it's I'm, I'm genuinely asking Look, like if <laughs> no no honestly if 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 i was mentoring somebody who dressed in a particularly um i don't know challenging manner let's say mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i might suggest a couple of stores where they would mm-hmm. find things that would make them appear comfortable in that office yeah the idea that i would i mean i would never tell somebody to sexualize themselves or to right. appear like a model or right. to right. dress she, a little more outgoing because he liked yeah. that like that is yeah. the boundary so the, alleg- the allegation is outgoing and I spoke to that person and that person told me you know she she got the idea that it was about being like sort of traditionally feminine not wearing a suit you know so you can draw your own conclusion with that but I think it's so one it's the access to people like Brett Kavanaugh that made people afraid to speak out according to my reporting against the behavior that they felt crossed boundaries. And then it's also what were they, you know, what kinds of needs were they fulfilling with Brett Kavanaugh, even if it's the most innocent thing in the world, people believed that they had to look a certain way. Again, thinking about this as about being equal access to education. Did the male clerks have to send their outfits when did the male applicants to clerkships have to send their outfits to Amy Chua? Right. You know, like, did the men have to get, have a certain look to clerk for him? And especially when Brett Kavanaugh is, and this is a really important part, Brett Kavanaugh is advertising himself during his nomination hearing as a champion to women and, a, right. and you know, bragging about how many female clerks he's had. And then Amy Chua writes an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying Brett Kavanaugh is a wonderful mentor to women, which is, again, part of kind of softening his image as President Trump's nominee. And subsequently, and, and disclosing in that piece, my daughter is going to clerk for him. So again, I think if you understand the story, not, I mean, yes, there's a lot of juicy parts of it. But to me, the story is ultimately about how do people access power? Who are the gatekeepers of that power? And what is the price of entering that kingdom of power? 
for individuals, especially women. This is really disturbing. How do we fix the gatekeeper system? <laughs> like, what, what, yeah. what do you, after having reported it on how it works now, like, what should institutions be doing to, to fix it? Is it really just adhering to Title IX, actually following the laws that we have? Yeah, I think um, I think there are a lot of people there right now who are trying really hard to make this process both less overheated so students don't feel like life or death if they don't, you know, achieve these particular things. Like there's only there's only like 39 Supreme Court clerks a year. You know, it's even there's 200 Yale law students a year. And obviously Yale is not the only place supplying it. So I think that you know, the, the kind of clerkship mania um, that is, I think we can think of it as a the extreme hyped up version of the general cultural culture of meritocracy that we have, which I think a lot of people agree has gotten totally out of hand and is driving people crazy. This idea that, you know, your entire worth and self-value is based on these metrics, you know, that of success that may or may not even make you happy or help you contribute to uh, contribute good to the world. Um, and then, you know, again, I think this kind of soft power, it doesn't have to be a bad or harmful thing. You know, it is possible to have a close mentoring relationship with somebody um, that, that is not based on this kind of, you know, invasiveness, to use the words of one of the complainants who was found credible in the Title IX process. You know, I think modeling a relationship of mentoring that, you know, Zerlina, to your point, it's not, you're not friends, quote unquote. You can have a warm mentoring relationship with someone, but you're not on an equal playing field. To me, that acknowledgement is just the beginning of it. Right. I mean, I just, yeah. it's very, I, I, in, we talk about this a lot on the show because I, I personally, I have very like firm boundaries mm-hmm. between professional and, and sort of like, you know, the people I would call on a bad day to, to, to articulate Jess's very helpful definition of what a friend is. That's um, my friend definition. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, it just, yeah. it's really good and it, it helps, it helps distinguish people into different groups when you sort of ask yourself. I yeah. call this person if I was like on the verge of tears and just needed to vent. No, most likely not um, right. um, for most people. <laughs> and I think that like one of the reasons why I have these boundaries is because I don't want to find myself in an uncomfortable sexual harassment situation at the office because I have blurred these lines and people get confused and I've had that happen before. I remember mm-hmm. early on in sort of my media career and media is the kind of thing where there's a lot of like smoozing involved. Yeah, I mean, it's right. similar to other, every profession has like their version of this, but mm-hmm. you know, media is like politics is about relationships and like you meet people for drinks and brunch and you have like conversations and you build. Right. But at the same right. time, I needed to have a firm boundary because men out here, they get it freaking twisted. And then they mm-hmm. send you messages that are way outside of the bounds of what your relationship is. It's not appropriate. Yeah. They comment on your appearance. They comment on how you look in particular photos that you're posting on your social media. And I had to be like, oh, hold up. That's not what's yeah. happening here. And a lot right. of time that person is old, a lot older than me. And yeah. I need to like step in and be like, dude, mm-hmm. you, would I date you? I'm 28. Always. You're 57. Why would just get out of here with that? <laughs> so well, I have I mean, to I like put that, those boundaries to protect myself. I mean, I feel like that's that's why this is an important conversation, right? Because yeah, and, I, and I women are often forced learn. to yeah, yeah. People learn that, but I think it's also it's a tall order for somebody who's just starting out. And I think mm-hmm. you know, I think we could all be forgiven as like in our early twenties 
just still trying to understand what is schmoozing and what might somebody misinterpret, you mm-hmm. know. And, and so I think, unfortunately, a lot of people learn that the hard way when someone else violates that vulnerability and crosses a boundary. And so I think, yes, absolutely. But I oh, don't my... think that the burden should just be on, you know, young people who are coming up in their careers to set those boundaries, I think people who want to mentor young adults should preemptively have those boundaries too. Yeah. Especially when you're talking about an institution, like the institution yep. is entrusted with the safety of these students. Like yeah. I, I think yeah. I, I learned the boundary with my first job out of college. I didn't really socialize mm-hmm. with professors in college, so I did not, I learned yeah. to avoid certain kinds of people, but I didn't really learn the power dynamics. And then I have my very first job in D.C. and I got a little too drunk at the office karaoke party and did a June <laughs> and Johnny um, duet with a male colleague who told me a week later that he was seriously thinking about leaving his wife for me. Oh, no. And I'm like, wait, 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 hold up. <laughs> we never we never we didn't kiss. Nothing happened there. Was, I didn't even think there was flirting. We, we, we sang walk the line. So, yeah. I mean, but that I, was, I, you know, that's I, when I was out I, in the I, world. This is not an institution. Media, I love that that's politics, the song. Politics and media <laughs> and, and also, you know, elite circles of anything, including law. You're right. They do rely on relationships. They rely on reputations. They rely on connections with other people. I mean, Jess, I think about how in politics, there's always young people who are traveling or just in the hotel yes. room or whatever. There's an enormous... Uh, burden of respecting those boundaries and trusting someone. And I think the same is true in a graduate school environment where, okay, like I didn't, I mean, honestly, the idea of drinking with my professors, I didn't go to grad school, so maybe I just don't understand it. But I think either, but I do, I did also experience that as a young person in media, you are so hungry to have people who are, and again, I'm talking about people who hold power, not just creepy people on the internet, People are eager to be mentored. They want to find a way in the profession to like fulfill their dreams, their career aspirations. And so I think that opens them up to a particular kind of exploitation. The people who are more experienced, it's the burden on them to not exploit that. And you're right, it's a question of institutions also making sure. But I think what's interesting is that there was an attempt to kind of show boundaries here. And, and, and people have turned it into, well, why can't Amy Chua have a dinner party? Well, what? Well, you know, Soviet. The Soviet Union has gone too far. I just think right. that is such a red herring. This is really about how power is wielded. An institution, an institution that is trying. You know, after more than twenty years, again, the allegations against Jed Rubenfeld went back twenty years. Nobody did anything. There was almost nothing done. And you know, when you try to suddenly change a culture of an institution where people have been doing things for a long time a certain way. I think there is going to be a lot of backlash from people who were just fine with the way things were done before. What was the amazing quote that you had in there? Somebody called him um, <laughs> the Louis C.K. of academia. Yes. Like, that it was, was that one, open yeah. a secret? Well, and, and, and to, you know, again, this refers to the fact when, when, you know, Slate reported that two people heard Amy say, I'm going to block people from clerkships who criticize my husband. These are... The, the criticism was of an op-ed that ran in 2014. And if you guys remember this, everybody was debating the Obama administration's changes in Title IX to try to give survivors equal access to education. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, Jed Rubenfeld published a series of articles, most prominently in the New York Times, arguing that universities had overstated the definition of rape and that, in fact, if you're intoxicated, um, 
you know, it does not count as rape was part of the argument, the argument that he made and that universities were convincing people well. who were not victims that they were victims. And so to have and, that, you know, there was a huge firestorm on campus. And then the question was, was Amy Chua and were he, was he going to retaliate against people who criticized this op-ed? Again, really important context to understand all this stuff that's gone down with the dinner parties, which is, do people feel comfortable even like in the so-called marketplace of ideas, criticizing someone who then has access to all this power? But the ideas that were being put out there were really interesting. And there's a professor on the record in my piece, like really interesting, quote unquote, because uh, Doug Kaiser, a professor I quote in my piece by name, says... You know, the strategic, the, the conspiratorial minded among us saw it as strategically defensive. All of a sudden, he's writing all these op-eds about how Title IX has gotten yes. out of hand, while people are considering filing Title IX complaints and, in fact, later, years later, follow through. Mm-hmm. You know, so a student who gives him feedback about affirmative consent and his opposition to it as a legal standard finds herself then, she says, and again, the committee found her credible, uh, with her professor attempting to kiss her. So she said, the basis of my Title IX complaint was that my professor tried to kiss me. And at that point, I realized it wasn't so theoretical. So that's how you get to the Louis yeah. kind of blurring of the work. And again, these allegations that were found credible against him. Mm. This is this is, so this is like the uh, the academic equivalent of that Internet phenomenon where, you know, if a, if a man starts referencing Romeo and Juliet laws and defending that kind of thing, you know that that dude is trying to get with a 16 year old. Yeah. yeah, I think we should be very wary of anybody who's who's speaking out against affirmative consent or saying that we are giving too much voice to survivors. Like the very first question ought to be, sir, what exactly is in your past? What are you doing right, right now? Why is it that right. you are so concerned about this? Like like his yeah. argument almost is meaningless at that point. The fact that you are arguing against that at all um, right. should make you quite suspect. And in fact, in this well, case, it seems yeah, like I mean, look, I think people should be free to make their arguments. But it just so happens that in my reporting, uh, you know, I found that at least six, probably, you know, maybe seven people brought Title IX complaints against him, which required identifying themselves to him, being cross-examined by him, allowing him to bring material against them, their own professor who they were afraid of. And at least right. three of them were found to be credible, maybe more because it's secret. But that's what I was able to report. And so I'm not saying that every single person who criticizes these regulations, I think people, you know, in a free democracy, people should be able to criticize policy. But it just so happens that writing that, that, you know, he told me last summer, I am being targeted because I criticize rape. And there are a lot of people who think it's the other way around. You know, that that again, the quote that I have in my strategically defensive, like there were it turned out 20 years of women willing to come forward against him at the same time that he was criticizing the Obama administration for going too far on behalf of survivors. I always pay attention. Yeah. I know we're out of time, but I always pay attention to their responses when anybody is accused of anything. I pay attention to Twitter. I see which men are like, eh, is this really that bad? Because I feel mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that comes from I have done you the thing or like there's a description here in this behavior that sounds familiar to me. Like it's I have done mom. some similar things. And, you know, we got to identify that so that people realize that it is actually not OK to behave this way. I just yeah. like full stop. We got to do better, guys. Um, yeah. Yeah. All of us. If you have power, um, don't abuse it. This is what I'm saying. Pretty easy to do it. Yeah. Um, thank you for joining us. This thank you this for morning. this conversation. This early in the morning. Lovely to, to chat with you both.
Yes, it was great to chat. And I'm, I'm, I think the last time we talked to you was earlier on in the pandemic when you were still pregnant. And so now um, that you yeah, have, and you just uh, written that uh, amazing piece. Yeah, exactly. So it's been a minute and we're always happy to have you like always anytime. Love come come that. talk to us about anything you want ever dogs I will, cats I would love anything. that I would love that <laughs> dogs cats living together love it All perfection right. mass hysteria please <laughs> thank you Marie everybody <laughs> stay safe stay safe right. in New York thanks for listening to the signal boost podcast we'll be back tomorrow with more news